Our passage to begin with comes from Matthew 13, 51 to 52. Again, put it into context because a text without a context is a pretext. Okay? You always put a verse into its context. Otherwise, you'll take it out and do all sorts of weird and strange things, which is happening in our day and age with that. So... The context is Jesus in Matthew 13 has been talking about parables. He's been teaching his, not only his followers, but his crowd in parables. And the disciples come back and say, why do you do this? And he says, well, so those who will hear, hear, and those who will not hear, do not hear. These are parables, really are stories for the disciples, for them to understand. They're nice little stories. You can sit there and listen and go, oh, wow, what a great teacher. Woo-wee. And get nothing out of it. But here, he's, he's telling them that. And then at the end, he says uh, this to his disciples, verse 51. Have you, understand all, have you understood all these things? Can you read, Mr. Gerhardt? I have no idea. Have you understood all these things? And they said to him, yes. And he said to them, therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. Now, when we read scribe in the New Testament, we think of those who were the lawyers, those who were the legalists, those who wrote down things. I think he's using that word for his disciples. You are the scribes, and you will bring out of your treasure those things that are old and those things that are new. And that's exactly what the catechisms do. They take the best of the old and the best of the new at their time, and they put it together. We'll see this as we look later on at the contents of the Heidelberg Catechism. It's, and they say, they don't say like in our day and age, if it's new, it's got to be the best. If it's old, you got to get rid of it. Or they say, if it's the old, it's the best. And the new is not worthwhile. They basically take the in-between position. And they say, let's use the best of the best, the best of the new, and the best of the old. And actually, that's the way the church is meant. We have 2,000 years in which the Holy Spirit has been teaching the church the scriptures through a variety of individuals and people and councils. And he has and we take the best out of all those years. He's given to us of such a broad range of things like prayers and hymns and teachings that we are called to use the best of all in order to. That's the wise scribe. You take a little bit of both. That's one of the reasons why we read the catechisms because that's what they did. As uh, one person, I think it's J.I. Packer because it really sounds like him, he co-authored this book, Grounded in the Gospel. Great little book. You ought to take it. Yeah, little book. Yeah, really little book. You ought to take it out and read it because it does give a background to the confessions. And Packer says this. This is the definition of confession. The church's ministry of grounding and growing God's people in the gospel 
and its implications for doctrine, devotion, duty, and delight. I know that's Packer because he loves alliterations. The church's ministry of grounding and growing God's people in the gospel and its implications for doctrine, devotion, duty, and delight. That's why you study the catechisms. And that's what this catechism has to do. And again, I would remind you why it's worthwhile studying. You study it because it attacks the biblical and literary illiteracy of our day. Uh, it used to be you could assume that when you were talking to a congregation, a church, they would understand the Bible. And you could say, well, you all remember the story of Jonah and the big fish. And they go, yes, my favorite, because I love to fish. Uh, now you can't even assume they know the simplest of the stories because of the illiteracy. So you have to tell the story before you can draw a conclusion from it. This, the catechisms, especially this one, will help eliminate that. It is also a basis to defend and propagate the faith. Well, you know what Peter said to us? Be ready to give a defense for the faith that is within you in gentleness and respect. Not like Westboro Baptist Church, hold up your signs and call people names, but to do it in a way that is winsome and yet keeps the truth. Uh, one of the th problems of our day and age is we talk to people about doing evangelism and they kind of look at you blank. Not that they aren't Christians. They just don't know. They don't have the ability to defend the faith. And they're afraid, somebody's going to ask me a tough question. And I say, well, you got an easy answer. That's an interesting question. I think I'll think about it for a while and I'll get back to you. Okay? But they don't even know the beginning of that. It's a continuous, successful, long-term process that causes spiritual growth. This happens to be, this catechism happens to be about 454 years old. Where it has been used and it has successfully helped a church to grow. 450 year track record. Well, that's quite a lot. When you have something that's only one year and you think it's, woo, that's a marvelous, that's the most marvelous thing we ever had. This is through different cultures, different times, different situations. It continues to be a building block. Um, it is also part of the teaching uh, part of what the church is all meant to be. Uh, Kevin DeYoung wrote this. The task of the Western church is not to reinvent or to be relevant, but to remember. What's one of the key words in De De Deuteronomy? Well, it's the word remember. Remember your God. Remember the law. Remember what he's done. Remember the feast. Remember, remember, remember. We don't have to be people who reinvent the wheel, nor do we have to be people who invent a wheel. 
we have to remember the 2,000 years of teaching the church, the Spirit has given to the church. And you'll find it found in this catechism. So it's kind of like the roles of the prophets, which we're going to study this afternoon, to which you are all invited to come and stay and listen about prophets. That's my cheap advertisement. <laughs> I paid myself five bucks to do that. <laughs> uh, that's the afternoon. But we have to, the prophets were there to recall, to help the people remember the covenant. And this is what the catechism does. It helps us to remember what we believe and who we are. A little history. And it's on your outline. Frederick III of what's now called Germany, he called an assembly into his base, into a center city, Heidelberg, between two movements of the early Protestant church. Up here in northeast Germany, you have Wittenberg with Luther and Lutheranism. Down south of Heidelberg, about equal distance, you have Zurich and Geneva, which is the headquarters of Calvinism, John Calvin and Zwingli and others like that. He called a conference because these two factions of the Reformation were causing friction. They weren't warring, but there was some friction within his empire. And no emperor loves friction in his empire. And so he said, what can I do to help reform my people in the reformational teachings that have come out of Luther and Calvin? What can I give to them that will help them know what they believe and who they are and will draw them back together? It was meant to be a very peaceful, ironic convocation and to pr produce a peaceful, ironic work. And it did. You had people coming together from uh, different areas. You had ministers, you had professors of theology, you had uh, pastors of congregations. For a small group that came together and they talked about the faith that was beginning to burgeon and grow within that area and within that time. That's one of the reasons it has much more pastoral tone because the majority of them were pastors. And they said, this will preach, this won't preach in my congregation. They just will not accept that hard line. <coughs> and so they will, because they wanted something that would cross over but also help pull them together. It's the difference with the Westminster Standards. Westminster Standards were produced about 100 years later after the Council of Trent, when the Catholic Church and the Protestant movement were really knocking heads, and they had to develop a statement that was concise, insightful, but also a little polemic, because they had to say, we are not this, we are this, without saying we are not this and we are this. So it is a much more detailed, theologically deep statement, but it doesn't have the same tone of the Heidelberg Catechism. That's one of the reasons why I like the Heidelberg Catechism. That's my pastoral, uh, pastoral stuff, is to, to preach and to teach in that way. 
Two chief characters that help write this. One is Caspar Olivianus. He was French, but he lived in, as many French Protestants had to do, lived in Geneva and Zurich, studied under Calvin because the Roman Catholic Church in, French, in France were killing them, so they escaped to there. Uh, he was a lawyer in his studies. One of the th interesting things that hit me as I was working on this, how many lawyers were involved in the Reformation? Luther studied to be a lawyer. Calvin was a lawyer. Casper uh, was a lawyer. So when next time you say a bad lawyer joke, you are hitting upon your own ancestry. Uh, the, the Reformation is just filled with lawyers. Why? Because they think clearly. They ask the penetrating questions. If you have ever sat talking with a lawyer, it's a horrendous adventure. Because <laughs> they will ask the questions that nobody wants to ask. Because they want to get right to the truth. So, uh, he, he was 26 when he wrote. There is hope for some of you that you can write a great document before you hit 26. Some of us, it is way past that time. <laughs> okay. The other one is Zacharias Ursinus. He's Polish in, ex in extract. He was a friend of Calvin and the Calvinistic teaching, but also he was a great friend with Melanchthon, who was Luther's second in command. So he understood both sides, and he could bring them together. In fact, at 28, he writes this thing, and he basically is the author. He took a catechism that he put together and expanded upon it. But he, he's like the Thomas Jefferson of the Declaration of Independence. Thomas Jefferson was the primary writer. Others put it, and then they went to the Congress, and it really got messed up. Because they are all adding their own thoughts to it. But the, um, the, your sinus was the one who really made it go. And he's the one who is normally uh, credited with it. Um, one of the things it does, it downplays the differences between the Lutheran position and the Reformed position. In the, in the Ten Commandments, you know, Lutherans and Reformed, they all believe in the Ten Commandments. Sometimes they number them different, and they have a little bit different idea of why they're there. But the, the Catechism does not necessarily deal with that. It skirts some of the, the, the biggest issue, and that's the Lord's Supper. And as I said a few weeks ago, the problem with the Lord's Supper is one little word, two letters, is. It all depends on what the definition of is, is. Things have not changed over a long period of time. And whether the body, uh, whether or not the bread and the wine are commingled with the body of, and blood of Christ, or whether the bread and the wine represent and symbolize and are a means by which you are spiritually transported or the body of Christ and the blood of Christ is applied to you. We'll take a deeper look at that when we get into the sacraments. 
But they skirted that whole issue because they wanted to bring the factions together. Um, and so they also don't deal with things like divine decrees, predestination and election, the things that kind of separate Reformed theologians from Lutheran theologians, because that was not important if you're going to build a unity. It's important for an understanding of the faith, but you're trying to be ironic, peaceful, bring together. It was published in January of 1563. That's why we're having a four, 450th anniversary. They have updated it. So all of those strange words like thee, thou, and if are gone. Uh, in your copy, they went from what would have probably have been the Geneva Bible, because that was the Bible of the day. Not the, This is before the King James. And even... After the King James, for another 50 to 60 years, the Geneva Bible was the Bible of choice. So when people say King James only, you say, well, come on. The Puritans didn't even like the King James. <laughs> so, uh, it was, at its time, one of three books that you had to have in your household. Now with a printing press. The Bible, in your own language. Thomas Akempis's Imitation of Christ, and later on John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, and then the Heidelberg Catechism. So if you only have four books in your library, which is the absolute minimum, which is probably the absolute minimum, you take those four books and you have a good understanding of the Christian life. Four factors for its stability and appeal. It's a summary of biblical truth embodied in simplistic and profundity of scriptural teachings. Again, it may be another reason why I like it. It is simple. And when you're like Pooh Bear, a bear of very little brains and long words bother you, it is really good reading for you. It's good format for both children and adults, you know, Children can learn to memorize this catechism, even down to the age of eight or six, or if they are greatly accelerated, down to four and five. They can learn the whole thing. Now we adults go, nah, our children can't do that. Yes, they used to do it all the time. And the kids would go out and play stickball and while they're running their bases, they say, what is the only comfort in life and death? And they, all the rest of the kids, as they're throwing the ball back, would say, that I, and they would repeat the answer. If you believe that one, I got land in Florida. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's simple. In fact, the New City Catechism, which is used downstairs, is based partly upon the Heidelberg Catechism. And it was also a common tool to spread a unified reformational theology. Now, one of the things about this and this and in, in, in using catechisms is what we have found is that those ages in which catechisms are not used for training and for understanding, the church weakens and eventually the church will die.
Oh, you may have a building and people, but they no, no, they no longer know biblical theology. They know more about the New York Times than they do about Malachi. Wherever the catechism has been used and consistently used, the church grows, it becomes stronger, it becomes a house that is quite stable. In fact, that's one of the ideas of the catechism. It's not to build up the church. It is to build the church, to put it on a solid, stable foundation. And out of that foundation, to develop a house that withstands the trials of life, poor theology, bad theology, pagan religions, and it has the strength and the ability to do exactly that. So that is why for the next umpteen months we are going to take time to do this so that you have that opportunity to grow. Now, so today I want you to go back or you take that little insert piece of paper and write down where you are right now in your spiritual growth. Put it away somewhere where you can find it. It's not like pieces of paper that I put away that I can, where in the world is that? And in a year from now, when we're done, pull it out and see how much you've grown, how much you've increased. Not only in your devotion, not only in your duty, but also in your thinking like Christ. That's what it's for. Okay. Are you on the page? Are we on the same, same page right now? We got that together? Day one, page 19. Lord's Day One. I, I, I should also say this is, they don't have chapters. They have Lord's Days. When the 129 questions were originally written, you're just supposed to go through them. And then someone got the great idea. Let's divide it up into 52 sections, one for each Lord's Day. And as was a habit then, you had a Sunday morning service where the preacher preached on either a lectionary or what, or went straight through a, Bible, a book or a preached in his way. And then you all, came, you all came back Sunday evening and he preached on the Heidelberg Catechism according to what day it was. I forget, I think this is like the 12th, uh, Sunday of the year, so you'd be at Lord's Day 12, and you know you bring your, Heidel, your little Heidelberg Catechism that you could put, put in your pocket, and you would hear a sermon about that. Now, suppose you sat there for 30 years listening to the same message over and over. Do you think you might catch what is being said? Yeah, I would hope so. If by the time you're somewhere in your mid-40s to 50s, you would pretty well know this book, and it would direct your life. That's it. Lord's Day 1 sets up the rest of the book. It is the one that is that which gives us the great theme of the book. It arouses our assurance that we are in the faith. It helps us just to understand who we are as the children of God. So it begins this way. What is your only? And I think when you read, you have to emphasize some things. 
What is your only comfort in life and in death? That word only is not like the way we use the word unique in our day and age. We talk about something being unique. It really means one of a kind. But it, what we really ought to say is it's rare. If we're going to be exact. And I am somewhat of an English grammatarian. I just... I want us to use the right words. I don't do it, but you do it. <laughs> don't do what I say. Do what you're supposed to do. Um, only comfort. The ultimate. The only thing that will give you comfort. That word comfort comes from a German word, which means certainty. Preservation. Protection. You know, we again, how language changes, we use the word comfort to come up beside somebody and go, oh, John, Luke, I'm sorry to hear what you said, which is nice, which is good. But ultimately, it all shows us I'm compassionate toward John Luke. The idea of comfort is to give strength, to give certainty, give protection. A little child falls down and scrapes his or her knee and goes running to mom and dad. And mom's the comforter. Oh, Susie, come here, come here. We'll make it all better. Dad goes, get up. You're okay. It's not broken. Get out there. <laughs> Both of those are comforts. One is, <laughs> believe it or not, both of those are comforts. One is that kind of sympathy that you need when you're hurting. The other one says, don't let it stop you. Get going. It's only a scrape. It'll be gone in a week. You're young. You heal fast. You're not like me, the old one. <laughs> <laughs> That's comfort. Comfort is protection. Mother protects, but also gives a certainty that the child is loved. What is your only comfort? That I, in life and death, notice the way they put it. That's another way to say all of life. Everything. It's, it's encompassing. John last week gave a great sermon on Psalm 23. Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He leads me into green pastures. I mean, that's life. And then it also goes on and says, but he leads me through, though I go through the valley of the shadow of death, he will be with me. That's comfort. And that's life. It's not just the green pastures. It's the shadow of death. And then you get to death itself. One of the things people fear the most is death because it's our last enemy. For some of us, it's the manner in which you are going to die. I think we all would like to die in our sleep. I mean, we put our head in a pillow, we close our eyes, and poof, we're in glory. All those bad dreams go away, and now you are in the best dream that you ever had. You went from shadow land to real land. Some of us are afraid of dying in a fire or in an automobile accident or in great pain or a long time of suffering. Well, what's your only comfort 
when you have to face the manner of your death? What's your only comfort when you face death itself? Stephen Hawkins died this week. As far as we know, he had no saving relationship with Jesus Christ. I wonder what it was like for that tremendous mind the moment he faced his own death and he knew he was taking his last breath. We don't know. But if it's like others that I've known that have faced death without Christ, it's clawing and grasp, you know, trying to catch a breath. It's doing everything you can to stay alive. For others I've seen who know Christ, it's peaceful. And it's gone. One of the things the Puritans did, again, another hundred years in the future, but their whole idea was to teach their people how to die well. How to do it with joy and comfort and peace. And if a person died and didn't die well, they considered it a failure on their part. They didn't teach them enough. This is what that, this is what the primary part of this catechism is all about. What is my only comfort? The, the only comfort that will last me through life and death. It's not my house. It's not my family. It's not my friends. It's not my job. What is it? And then he goes on. They go on to answer that question. That I... And again, when you read catechisms, confessions, like when we read the Nicene Creed, you almost need to pause with a comma. Sometimes they put commas in for literary reasons, grammatical reasons. Sometimes after a long sentence, you put a comma in because I got to get a breath. But the comma is there to have you say, stop, pause, think about this. It's like that little word in the Psalms, Selah. You see that? You know how many times you read the Psalms and you just kind of skip over it? Well, that's part of the inspired word. And it's a word that means musical interlude. That means stop and think about what you just read. Don't, let, don't keep on going until you've paused long enough to deal with it. That I, personal, me, one, where in the, say, the Nicene Creed, we say we believe. That is, it's a corporate statement of our faith. Apostles' Creed say I believe because it was a baptismal statement of faith and therefore it had to be personal. Right off the bat, they're saying this is something personal, something that you have to be able to do and say and affirm. That I with body and soul. That's the whole of who I am. Not just my mind, not just my emotions, not just my will, not just if I'm feeling good or I'm feeling bad, not just with one part of me, which is like the Gnostic teachings where, you, where they said the body is evil, so don't even listen to it. I know with the body and soul, the unity of who you are, the fullness of you. It's a Hebrew ID. Body and soul is what they meant when they talked about a human being. That two unified, a physical 
and a non-physical, material and immaterial, put together. I, with body and soul, both in life and in death. If you look down the footnote, Romans 14, 7, 8. For none of us lives to himself, and no one dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. Catch the tense. It's not we might be the Lord's, or we one day will be the Lord's, which is encounter to the Roman Catholic Church that says you cannot know whether you are the Lord's. You don't know if you've done enough good things, enough good works to make sure that you are justified before God. You believe, that's fine, that's the start. You add your good works, and if you have enough, then you are justified. And you've got to go through your whole life thinking, am I? Have I done it? Is that enough? And the Catechism says, in both, or the scripture says, we are the Lord's. This is a present reality. Am not my own. That is, we belong to another, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. I think we all enjoy the idea of belonging. Uh, that's part of what it is to be a family. And to have mother and father who welcome you, who love you, who bring you in and care for you. That idea of belonging. And if we don't find it there, we'll find it somewhere else. We may find it in other people. We may have friends. We may get into, involved into a gang because we belong to that gang and therefore we get tattooed and we do what they tell us because why? We want to belong. We'll get along with our friends at work because we want to belong. But here is the ultimate, the only comfort, that I belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Or as 1 Corinthians 3.23 says, you are Christ and Christ is God's. That we are his temple. 1 Corinthians 6.19-20 on your paper, paper says, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. That's why the scripture talks about being slaves. We are bondservants. We are slaves to Christ. He's bought us. We belong to him. So glorify God in your body. Romans, for none of the, us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. If we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. And to this end, Christ died and lived again that we might be, that he might be Lord both of the dead and the living. That's who we are. Then you go on. Who with his precious blood. And the, the idea of blood is not simply the blood itself, but the blood is life. New Testament, the scripture uses that word blood to mean all of your life. With his precious blood, life has fully, I love adverbs, fully satisfied for all my sins. He has indeed satisfied my worth issue and redeemed me from all the power of the devil. Semicolon. 
Really think about that. And so preserves me that without the will of my Father in heaven, not a hair can fall from my head. That's the passage where he says, the Lord knows every hair that's on your head. It's a lot easier for some of us than for others. However, and some of us who are losing our hair know that he still knows every hair on our head. That's the intimacy with which God knows us. And it says he's done two things. He's fully satisfied our worst issue. So I put the passage from Hebrews 2. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. He destroyed the devil. We live underneath the power of the devil before we come to Christ. That's the first part, and that's why I included that Ephesians 2, 1-4 passage where we follow the prince of the power of the air. Uh, We follow the passions of our flesh and the devil inflames the passions of our flesh in a variety of ways so that we desire and we want to follow them. And then secondly, he delivers us from and for God. Our sins and sinfulness which separate us from his pleasure and his blessing. I purposely put that word from God. Because we think that, uh, at least in modern evangelical teaching, we teach that your salvation was paying the penalty for your sins, which it is. And that's, we kind of say that's about all it is. Now, the essence of, God's, of Christ's salvation is this. From what did he rescue you? Not just your sins. He rescued you from God. That's why on the cross he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He took the forsakenness, the wrath of God upon himself so that you and I would not have to face it. Our greatest enemy is not our sin. Our greatest enemy was, and if you are not a believer, is the wrath of God upon you. Hell is hell not because of the absence of God, but because of his absolute presence. And because in his presence there is no shield against it. And you feel and you experience that for all eternity. Eternity is not the word. Everlasting. From the moment you die, you are without a covering. And you are underneath the wrath of God. Now your sins help to put you there. But that's what... That's what the cross is all about. Being delivered from your sins is a corollary to that first one. And that's what this confession is getting at. And thirdly, Jesus preserves us. It's what Christ Jesus continues to do for us over and over again. uh, Under footnote number seven, John 6, 39. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should lose, what's the word? What's the word? What's the word? Okay. Just make sure you're awake. Uh, 
but should raise it up at the last day. I looked up that word nothing in the Greek. It means no thing. <laughs> Think about that for a minute. This is the will of my Father. And the will of the Father is always accomplished. His immutability tells you it will be accomplished. That I should lose nothing but raise it up in the last day. You see where our assurance is? It's not that one day at a camp before a cross I knelt down and confessed Christ as my Lord and Savior. Now, it is that the will of my Father is that his son should lose nothing and I am included as a something within all of that. When we walked with our little kids around the mall, there were two ways we could walk with them. We'd put our hands down and their little hands would grab our little pinky and toddle along with us. And then when things got really busy, our big hand would wrap around their hand and hold on tight. Daddy, Daddy, it's too tight. There's a reason for it. Get used to it. Buck up. <laughs> I was a great father. They really loved me. <laughs> this is the image of our salvation. It's not somehow we made a commitment of faith and we reached up and grabbed hold of God's little pinky and we get to hold on to it. It's he took his hand and he put it around us and said, you're mine. You are mine and I will not let anything come between us. I will hold on to you no matter what. That's what the confession, the catechism is saying. He preserves me. Not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for good. And that's back to that Romans 8 passage. Romans 8, we know that all things, uh, for those who love God, all things work together for good. And we really like that one, right? For those who are called according to his purpose. It's not a blanket statement for all people. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What's amazing about that passage it's all in the past tense. From the beginning, in fact, before the beginning of time, where God is eternal. He foreknew you. That means he foreloved you. It's not that he looked down the corridor at time and said, well, there's some people who are going to come to faith in me, therefore I'll pick them. He says, I love this one. And therefore I will predestine. I will choose him. And then I will call him. I have called him. And I have justified him. And I have glorified him. Our glorification hasn't even happened yet. We're still in the process. Between justification and glorification. But they're talking as if it's done. There is no 
ability for it not to be done. I will lose nothing. He said, it doesn't depend upon me. It depends upon the triune God. I find it also interesting they don't even deal in the, Paul doesn't even deal with the whole issue of sanctification. He left it out. We would say, I'm called, I'm justified, I'm sanctified, and then I'm glorified. He doesn't deal with it. Why? Because sanctification, the, between justification and glorification, it will happen. You cannot stop it. It will take place if you are a child of God, if you have been called. I don't know about you, but that gives me a whole lot of assurance in those days when I'm not too obedient. Where that old sin nature props up and I feel like being rebellious and I want to do, I want to do what I want to do. And then I have to remember, I am already glorified. Because in God, where there is no time, he sees me that way. That's Wednesday night when we had Pi Day. We talked about the eternality of God. He is outside time. He knows the end from the beginning. And he's all around it. And he is immutable. He doesn't change. So he can't say somewhere along the line, oh man, I made a mistake with Andy. That was bad. I must have been having a bad day. Where was my V8 when I needed it? And he said, no, I've chosen. He's mine. See what the, the catechism leads you in the assurance? Wherefore, it says, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life. There's no doubt of our salvation and relationship with God if you understand who God is and what he's done for you in Jesus Christ. And makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live unto him. And I use the word passion. We are not only called to obey, but we love to obey and to follow where he wants. I don't say we love perfectly because we don't. But we love, that's the very core of who we are when you get down to it. That's what we want to do. And that's the answer to the first question. Notice a couple things. The triune nature of the answer. Savior Jesus Christ, my Father, Holy Spirit. That the Holy Spirit is the earnest, the down payment for what he's going to, to, going to accomplish. And that's what he is. You see, where the Westminster Confession begin, and larger catechism begins with the glory of God. What is the uh, chief and highest end of man? The answer is to glorify God. The chief and highest end of man is to glorify God and to fully enjoy him forever. The glory of God, giving glory to God, leads to joy. In the Heidelberg Catechism, it is the joy of being one of God's leads to glorifying him. The same idea from two different perspectives. The second question is simply an outline of what's going to come. 
How many things are necessary for you to know that in this comfort you may live and die happily? First thing, three things. First, greatness of my sin. My sin, my misery, my guilt. This is going to sound very much like a sermon I know is coming. (laughs) Second, how I am redeemed from all my sins and misery. That is my salvation. I'm bought back. My, the grace that God shows to me. And third, how I am to be thankful to God for such redemption. My gratitude, my service, my action. That's what we're going to take a look. And if you go back in the back of the book, yes, you are allowed to look at the back of the book before you get there. 138. It's like a math course I had where the answers were in the back of the book. We all got A's. <laughs> Didn't even have to study. <laughs> you have the introduction. You see part one is our misery. Part two is our deliverance. And included in that is the Apostles' Creed and what that says about our deliverance and the, tri- the triune God. Then talk about the sacraments, one of the primary means of grace toward that deliverance. And then part three is our thankfulness or service, the new life, the parts of sanctification. And then you get into the Ten Commandments. How then does God want us to live? And finally, the Lord's Prayer. How then do we pray? And you see, that's the outline of the the catechism that we're going to be studying over a while. What I want you to do is uh, every Sunday that I'm here, we'll be teaching on a Lord's Day with a question and answer, and I'll try to fill it out like I've done today. And then for the rest of the week, I want you to think about that question and that answer. Meditate on it. As John told us last week, John Gray told us last week, be a cow. Bring it up, take it down, bring it up, take it down. Until green grass turns into white milk, unless you're a brown cow, and then it's chocolate milk. (laughs) Green grass becomes white milk. (laughs) You guys haven't heard that one before? Oh, thank you. I didn't think. Meditate on it. Think about it. Think about what it means to you. And then finally, um, apply the teachings to your life as you meditate upon it. What's this say to me about the times when I don't think God loves me. The times when I wonder what God is doing in my life. Those kind of things. Think about those kind of questions because that's that's what it's meant to do. And then the next Sunday we come back, look at another question. You do the same thing Sunday before. You are allowed, if you want, if you have to, go ahead and read next to Lord's Day before we come. We won't bring any demerits against you in the file folder that we have of you. <laughs> I'm teasing about that. There are no demerits, but and in fact, you could use this in your sisterhood, brotherhood, familyhood, in just in your hood. <laughs> but but do this over and over again. But think about it. Really really take some time and meditate upon it. It's started that a scribe brings out of uh, his treasures that which is old and new. Let me bring out something that is old. It's almost 200 years old. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. 
I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. When darkness veils his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and storming gale, my anchor holds within the veil. His oath, his covenant, his blood support me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before his throne. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. What is my only comfort in life and death? The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. If you don't know him, you are on sinking sand. And you need to seek him. Read his word. Talk to other to Christians. Let them explain to you who the Savior is. If you do know him, rejoice. Rejoice. Second part of the fruit of the Spirit is to have joy at who God is and what he's done for you. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we are so grateful that you have not left us alone and left us to our own devices and left us, O oh Lord, to be a people who are sweltering and floundering in our own life. Help us to learn how to die well. Help us to learn what it is to place ourselves on Christ. Help us, O oh Lord, to be a people who are well-grounded and comforted in life and death in you. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.